Welcome to the Presentation Boss Podcast. This is episode number two. We're your hosts. I'm Kate Norris. And I'm Thomas Craft. Whether you're pitching your business, speaking at a work meeting, or on the stage, we're here to help you present with clarity and confidence. Today, we're breaking down a speech. It's a TED Talk by astronaut Chris Hadfield, titled, What I Learned from Going Blind in Space. Welcome to episode two of the Presentation Boss podcast. This is one of the formats we'll be doing, which is listening to a speech and having a bit of a discussion around what we think is effective and anything we feel that could be changed and why. We believe if you want to improve your speaking, a great way is to watch plenty of other speeches and to start to think about what does and doesn't work. We're starting with a TED talk by Chris Hadfield, who was a commander of the International Space Station. This is Chris Hadfield in 2014 with What I Learned from Going Blind in Space. Let's have a listen. What's the scariest thing you've ever done? Or uh, another way to say it is... What's the most dangerous thing that you've ever done? And why did you do it? I know what the most dangerous thing is that I've ever done, because uh, NASA does the math. You look back to the first five shuttle launches, the odds of a catastrophic event during the first five shuttle launches was one in nine. And even when I first flew on the shuttle back in 1995, 74 shuttle flight, the odds were still, now that we look back, about 1 in 38 or so. 1 in 35, 1 in 40. So he's got a really strong opening here. So he begins uh, with a question. Well, not just one question. He has those three questions. What's the scariest thing, the most dangerous, and why did you do it? Asking questions is really powerful. It starts to get your audience thinking about their own situation and also wondering about what's to come. We're going to talk about dangerous things, are we? It starts them, I guess their interest peaked for the rest of the talk. And then I really like that line, uh, I know the most dangerous thing because NASA runs the numbers. I just think that's a nice little light comment that's going to carry us into uh, the spaceman story, into the astronaut story. Uh, Not great odds. So it's a really interesting day when you wake up at the Kennedy Space Center and you're going to go to space that day. Because you realize by the end of the day, you're either going to be floating effortlessly, gloriously in space, or you'll be dead. Uh, You go into... I think that's a beautiful pause. Really high stakes there. About there's very high odds this mission is not going to go well. And by the end of today, uh, you'll be quite successful or dead. And then a pause to let that sink in. Mm. You go into, at the Kennedy Space Center, into the uh, the suit-up room. The same room that, that our childhood heroes got dressed in, that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin got suited in, in to go ride the Apollo rocket to the moon. And I got my uh, pressure suit built around me and uh, rode down outside in the van heading out to the, uh, to the launch pad, in the Astro van heading out in the launch pad. And as you come around the corner at the Kennedy Space Center, it's normally pre-dawn, and in the distance, lit up by the, the huge xenon lights, is your spaceship. The vehicle that is, is going to take you off the planet. And the crew is, is sitting in the astro van, sort of hushed, almost holding hands, looking at that as it gets bigger and bigger. We ride the elevator up, 
and we uh, crawl in on your hands and knees into the spaceship one at a time and you sort of worm your way up into your chair and plunk yourself down on your back. So I think this is a beautiful example of storytelling and what he's just described is kind of this process which probably I imagine takes I don't know, anywhere from a few minutes to a couple of hours. And he's just put in enough detail that we can kind of follow along with what's happening, but not too much detail that it's unnecessary or boring or tedious. But it's still giving us a quite a clear process of you go and suit up and then and the a van. little bit about the van and getting into the spaceship without too much tedious detail. And... The hatch is closed, and suddenly, what has been a lifetime of both dreams and denial is becoming real. Something that I dreamed about, in fact, that I chose to do when I was nine years old, is now uh, suddenly within not too many minutes of actually happening. And in the astronaut business, the shuttle is a very complicated vehicle. It's the most complicated flying machine ever built. And in the astronaut business, we have a saying, which is, uh, there is no problem so bad that you can't make it worse. <laughs> and So I really like that line and the fact that he pauses, no problem so bad you can't make it worse. It's funny on the face of it, but actually makes me stop and think and go, oh, yeah, this is actually quite a serious situation. To me, it wasn't a deep line. It's just a funny line. Yeah. But it's interesting you got something different out of that. Yeah, there's probably people in this audience got something different again. Mm. And so you're very conscious in the cockpit. You're thinking about all of the things that you might have to do, all the switches and all the wickets you have to go through. And as the time gets closer and closer, this excitement is building. And then about three and a half minutes before launch, the huge nozzles on the back, like the size of big church bells, swing back and forth. And the mass of them is such that it sways the whole vehicle, like, like the vehicle's alive underneath you, like, like uh, an elephant getting up off its knees or something. And then about 30 seconds before launch, the vehicle is completely alive. It is ready to go. The APUs are running. The computers are all self-contained. It's ready to leave the planet. And 15 seconds before launch, this happens. 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 7, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, so what he's doing here, you can hear in his voice, he's got this kind of one minute sequence where he barely even takes a breath. He's just describing this process of the spaceship, like turning on or whatever it's doing. And it's like the energy in his in his voice is building and it's just creating so much tension. Like, like I can feel that watching it and listening to that. And that's all just purely with his voice and the pace of it. Yep. And then he cuts to uh, a video there, which is of a space shuttle taking off. And it's close up and it describes that point beautifully. It saves him having to describe what's happening. It's a really short clip, uh, very visual and very well placed. So if you get the chance, go online watch the full talk and see that video. 
It is incredibly powerful to be on board one of these things. You are in the grip of something that is vastly more powerful than yourself. It's shaking you uh, so hard you can't focus on the instruments in front of you. It's like you're in the, uh, the jaws of some enormous dog and there's a, a foot in the small of your back uh, pushing you to space, accelerating wildly straight up, shouldering your way through the air, and you're in a very complex place, paying attention, watching the vehicle go through each one of its wickets with a steady increasing smile on your face. After two minutes, those solid rockets explode off, and then you just have the liquid engines, the hydrogen and oxygen, and it's as if you're in a dragster with your foot to the floor and uh, accelerating like you've never accelerated. You get lighter and lighter, the force gets on us heavier and heavier, and it feels like, like someone's pouring cement on you or something, until finally, after about eight minutes and 40 seconds or so, we are finally at exactly the right altitude, exactly the right speed, the right direction, the engine shut off, and we're weightless. And we're alive. It's an amazing experience. Okay, so two things here. Um, first of all, I think I spoke way too soon because he continued to build that as he was going into the atmosphere, yeah. and that pace got faster and faster, and again, he's not taking a breath. He's not allowing any space between his words, which is building that tension yep. completely in that feeling. And then, all of a sudden, and then you're weightless and you're alive. And again, he's just letting that voice come really softly and letting us feel that that change in his pace. And what I think he's actually done is not left enough space after that. We can hear he's about to start his next sentence. What I would have liked to see is maybe a few more seconds of us feeling that weightlessness. A longer pause. For sure. And just let that sink in and give us a break because that's quite emotional build. And I would have liked just another mm. moment to breathe and feel that tension lift. Feel it's all okay. Mm. But why would we take that risk? Why would you do something that dangerous? In my case, the answer is fairly straightforward. I was inspired as a, as a youngster that this is what I wanted to do. I watched the first people walk on the moon, and to me, it was just an obvious thing. I want to somehow turn myself into that. But the real question is, how do you deal with the danger of it and the fear that comes from it? How do you deal with fear versus danger? And having the goal in mind, thinking about where it might lead, directed me to a life of, of looking at all of the, the small details to allow this to become possible, to be able to launch and go help build a space station where you are on board a million-pound creation that's going around the world at five miles a second, eight kilometers a second around the world, 16 times a day, with experiments on board that are teaching us uh, a, what the substance of the universe is made of, and running 200 experiments inside, but maybe even more importantly, allowing us to see the world in a way that is impossible uh, through any other means. To be able to look down and have, if your jaw could drop, it would, the jaw-dropping gorgeousness of the, the turning orb, like a, like a, a self-propelled art gallery of fantastic, constantly changing beauty that is the world itself. And you see, because of the speed, a sunrise or a sunset every 45 minutes for half a year. And the most... So there's an interesting point here with his storytelling. He talks about how he saw impossible sights 
but then he tries to describe them and it kind of just doesn't work because I imagine, well, I've never been to space, I don't know what it looks like. And I would have liked him to describe how he felt so that we could be immersed in what he was experiencing. So my jaw dropped at the views of... I was inspired and couldn't believe the sunrise and sunset every 45 minutes. So tell us what he felt rather than trying to describe something that is impossible to us as a listener. Mm, It's like trying to describe a mountain scenery or something. You actually can't, you can't even take a photo of it properly. You have to be there. So you need to describe the feeling, not the The visual, not the scene. Yeah. And the most magnificent part of all that is to go outside on a spacewalk. You are in a one-person spaceship that is your spacesuit, and you're going through space with the world. It's an entirely different perspective. You're not looking up at the universe. You and the Earth are going through the universe together. And you're holding on with one hand, looking at the world turn beside you. It's, it's, it's like roaring silently with, with color and texture as it pours by just mesmerizingly next to you. And if, if you can tear your eyes away from that and you look under your arm down at the rest of everything, it's, it's a, a, an unfathomable blackness, like a, with a, a, a tux, texture you feel like you could stick your hand into. And you are holding on with one hand, one link to the other seven billion people. So right there, he says that sentence, you're hanging on to the spaceship, you're that one link to 7 billion people. I feel like I'm not. I'm not. He's the one that's holding on. I would have liked him to say, you know, I'm hanging on to the spaceship and I realize this is my one connection to the other 7 billion people of the planet. Again, I want to be immersed in what he's thinking and feeling, not trying to put me in that situation because it is such a strange situation to be in. And I was outside of my first spacewalk when my left eye went blind. And I didn't know why. Suddenly, my left eye slammed shut in great pain, and, and I couldn't figure out what, why my eye wasn't working. I was thinking, what do I do next? I thought, well, I, maybe that's why we have two eyes. So I kept working. But w- unfortunately, without gravity, uh, tears don't fall. And so you just get a bigger and bigger ball of whatever that is mixed with your tears on your eye until eventually the ball becomes so big that the surface tension takes it across the bridge of your nose like a tiny little waterfall and goes goosh into your other eye. And now I was completely blind outside the spaceship. So there's two things that have happened here. Again, there's that uh, swapping between the second person and the first person. He talks about you and something that you would do but I am blind. So I'd like to see that congruent, uh, consistent with just him talking about himself. And secondly, so he says, I am blind outside the spaceship and pauses again. It's a bit longer pause than that one you picked up before, Mm. Kate. Uh, But I think, again, this could be a little bit longer to let the gravity, so to speak, of that situation sink in for the audience. Yeah, but it it is, I think it is an effective pause. Like it, it works. Yeah, just, I think. Yeah. A little bit longer would not hurt. So what's the scariest thing you've ever done? <laughs> Great tension break. Absolutely. That's exactly what I was going to say. A lot of tension, blind outside a spaceship. Oh, but what are you scared of? And you can see the audience has that little giggle that breaks the tension. Maybe it's spiders. A lot of people are afraid of spiders. I think you should be afraid of spiders. Spiders are creepy, and they got long, hairy legs. And spiders like this one, the, uh, the brown recluse, I mean, it's horrible. If a brown recluse bites you, you end up with one of these horrible, big, necrotic things on your leg. And there might be one right now sitting 
on the chair behind you, in fact. And how do you know? And so a spider lands on you, and you go through this great spasmy attack because spiders are scary. But then you could say, well, is there a brown recluse sitting on the chair beside me or not? I don't know. Are there brown recluses here? So if you actually do the research, you find out that in the world there are about 50,000 different types of spiders, and there are about two dozen that are venomous out of 50,000. And if you're in Canada because of the cold winters, here in BC there's about 720, 730 different types of spiders, and there's one. One that is venomous, and its venom isn't even fatal. It's just kind of like a nasty sting. And that spider, not only that, but that spider has beautiful markings on it. It's like I'm dangerous. I got a big radiation symbol on my back. It's the black widow. So if you're even slightly careful, you can avoid running into the one spider that, and it lives close to the ground. It is, you're walking along. You are never going to go through a spider web where a black widow bites you. Spider webs like this, it doesn't build those. It builds them down in the corners, and it's for black widow because it's the female spider eats the male. It doesn't care about you. So in fact, the next time you walk into a spider web, you don't need to. Panic and go with your caveman reaction. The danger is entirely different than the fear. And how do you get around it, though? How do you change your behavior? Well, next time you see a spider web, have a good look, make sure it's not a black widow spider, and then walk into it. And then you see another spider web and walk into that one. It's just a little bit of fluffy stuff. It's not a big deal. And the spider that may come out is no more threat to you than a ladybug, or or a, or a butterfly. Okay, so two things here. Um, first of all, that's a great line. The is. danger is very different to the fear. Again, we need a little pause after that one to let it sink in. And second, um, in Australia, you probably are warranted to have a decent reaction to walking into a spider web. So I wouldn't recommend walking into spider webs in Australia. Yeah, not an applicable example, <laughs> I think. Beautiful for where they are in Vancouver. For sure. That's entirely different. We have more than one venomous species. We sure do. Okay, let's go. And then I guarantee you, if you walk through a hundred spider webs, you will have changed your fundamental human behavior, your caveman reaction, and you will now be able to walk in the park in the morning and not worry about that spider web or or into your grandma's attic or whatever into your own basement. And you can apply this to anything. So what Chris has done here is he has set up this entire scene um, that we've sort of parked for the moment about being blind in space. And then he talks about something which is actually quite relatable to all of us here on Earth, which is a fear of something quite common like spiders. It actually sets a little anchor around that idea of practicing something until it becomes not scary. Like walking into spider webs becomes not scary. And we can apply that now to anything. If you're outside on a spacewalk and you're blinded, your natural reaction would be to panic, I think. It would make you nervous and, and worried. But we had considered all the venom, and we had practiced with a whole variety of different spider webs. We knew everything there is to know about the spacesuit. And we trained underwater thousands of times. And we don't just practice things going right. We practice things going wrong all the time, so that you are constantly walking through those spider webs. And not just underwater, but also in virtual reality labs with the helmet and the gloves, so you feel like it's realistic. So when you finally actually get outside on a spacewalk, it feels much different than it would if you just went out first time. And even if you're blinded, your natural panicky reaction doesn't happen. Instead, you kind of look around and go, OK, I can't see. But I can hear, I can... Just an interesting little point there. He says, when you can't see in space, you look around. So I'm just not sure if he is looking and can see. 
But what I do like that he's just done is he had that anchoring example of the spider and he mentioned it a few more times. He referred to the venom and walking into the webs a couple more times to draw that metaphor through his training process. Mm. Talk, Scott Perzinski's out here with me. He could come over and help me. We actually practiced uh, incapacitated crew rescue. So he could float me like a blimp and stuff me into the airlock if we had to. I could find my own way back. It's not nearly as big a deal. And actually, if you keep on crying for a while, whatever that guck was that's in your eyes starts to dilute, you can start to see again. And Houston, if you negotiate with them, they will let you then keep working. And uh, we finished everything on the spacewalk. And when we came back inside, Jeff got some cotton batten and took the crusty stuff around my eyes. And it turned out it was just the anti-fog, sort of a mixture of uh, oil and soap that got in my eye. And, uh, and now we use Johnson's No More Tears, which we probably should have been using right from the very beginning. Again here, he's taken that tension that he's built up about having anti-fog in his eyes and broken it with something that's a little bit flippant, a little bit silly. Yeah. And a kind of a bit of a point about humour here. He's used a bit of specificity. He didn't say, and now we use something else. He says, now we use Johnson's No More Tears. And it's something so relatable and, and specific. It just helps to reduce that tension that we've built again in the story. Because that story has effectively come to an end. He's back inside the spaceship, the stuff's out of his eye. And while that was a heavy story, yeah, we've just been lifted back out of it. A little bit of a laugh and we can continue to move on. But, but the key to that is by looking at the difference between perceived danger and actual danger. Where's the real risk? What is the real thing that you should be afraid of? Not just a generic fear of bad things happening. You can fundamentally change your reaction to things so that it allows you to go places and see things and do things that otherwise would be completely denied to you. Where you can see the, the hard pan south of the Sahara. Or you can see New York City in a way that is almost dreamlike. Or the unconscious gingham of uh, Eastern Europe fields, or the Great Lakes as a collection of small puddles. You can see the fault lines of San Francisco and the way the water pours out under the bridge, just entirely different than any other way that you could have if you had not found a way to conquer your fear. You see a beauty that otherwise never would have happened. It's time to come home at the end. This is our spaceship, the Soyuz, that little one. Three of us climb in, and then this spaceship detaches from the station and falls into the atmosphere. These two parts here actually melt. We jettison them and they burn up in the atmosphere. The only part that survives is the little bullet that we're riding in, and it... It's probably worth noting uh, just here, he has a couple of photos on screen to help support his point, and a diagram of that Soyuz module, which is not... Super important, but it certainly helps visualise it if you're looking at the screen. Yeah, just got some very simple little visuals um, of the spaceship that he's coming home in that he's talking about at the moment. And it falls into the atmosphere, and in, a, in essence, you are riding a meteorite home. And riding meteorites is scary, and it ought to be. But instead of riding into the atmosphere, just screaming like you would if suddenly you found yourself riding a meteorite back to Earth, <laughs> Instead, 20 years previously, we had started studying Russian. And then, once you learned Russian, then we uh, learned uh, orbital mechanics in Russian. And then we learned uh, vehicle control theory 
And then we got into the simulator and practiced over and over and over again. And in fact, you can fly this meteorite and steer it and land in about a 15-kilometer circle anywhere on the Earth. So in fact, when our crew was coming back into the atmosphere inside the Soyuz, we weren't screaming, we were laughing. It's interesting here, he... So he puts that comment in about if you happen to find yourself riding a meteor. It's a little bit of a joke that sort of plays on the ridiculousness of this situation to the, to the normal person. And I notice he starts dropping the G's off the end of his words. He had laughing and... Screaming. Yeah, and crying earlier on. And I think that's a little bit of a nod to this is such a strange and extreme situation that Chris has experienced. And so he makes his language very slightly more casual to make it more accessible to the audience. We can actually relate to him a little bit better because his language doesn't reflect the like highly trained, educated nature of this situation. It was fun. And when the great big parachute opened, we knew that if it didn't open, there's a second parachute. And it runs on a nice little clockwork mechanism. So we came back, we came thundering back to Earth, and this is what it looked like to land in a Soyuz in Kazakhstan. And you can see one of those uh, search and recovery helicopters. Once again, uh, that uh, helicopter, part of a dozen such Russian Mi-8 helicopters. Touchdown, 3.14 and 48 seconds, AM Central Time. Again, just a short video. It looks like a, uh, a news clip shot from a distance of, a, of that Soyuz parachuting into the desert in, I think it was Kazakhstan. Yeah, I actually didn't like that visual. It was very, very blurry, and it was just a little tiny box coming down in a parachute. It wasn't any... It did To me, it didn't feel like it added to the speech. It was actually quite easy to describe that clip as, you say, a box parachuting down. He could almost say that in three words... Well, did, yeah. ...rather than showing the visual, which takes up a bit more time and distracts from him as the presenter. He lands in a cloud of kind of dust and smoke, and again, you can't see anything. It's blurry footage of dust... To me, it didn't add anything. Yep, okay. And you roll to a stop as if someone threw your spaceship at the ground and it tumbles end over end. But you're ready for it. You're in a custom-built seat and you know how the shock absorber works. And then eventually the Russians reach in, drag you out, plunk you into a chair, and you can now look back at what was an incredible experience. You have taken the dreams of that nine-year-old boy, which were impossible and dauntingly scary dauntingly terrifying, and put them into practice. I love what he does with his voice here. He starts slowing down and drawing his words out, and it makes it a little bit cinematic. Yeah, I think that's the only way I can describe it. The dreams of this nine-year-old boy. And, it and I agree with you what he does with his voice there, absolutely. I notice he again uses the word you. You can look back on this experience, and you have brought the dreams alive. I think it really needs to be first person. I had brought the dream alive, and I was looking back on this successful mission and figured out a way to reprogram yourself, to change your primal fear so that it allowed you to come back with a set of experiences and uh, a level of inspiration for other people that never could have been possible otherwise. Just to finish, uh, they asked me to, uh, to play that guitar. Uh, I know this song, and uh, it's really a tribute to the genius of uh, David Bowie himself, but it's also, I think, a, a reflection of the fact that we are not machines exploring the universe, we are people. And we're taking uh, that, uh, that ability to adapt and that ability to understand and the ability to take our, our own self-perception into a new place. So Chris Hadfield 
was quite well known for playing the guitar in the International Space Station, singing this David Bowie song. And I think there's an element of when going through the TED process of knowing that the audience would be thinking, hey, do the thing, do that thing that we've seen you do, and I want to see it in person. And so it blends nicely into the end of this speech that people feel that sense of satisfaction that he's doing the thing. See, where I think for me... I don't know anything about this guy. This is my first introduction to him. I don't know his story. So I am kind of wondering why is he about to play the guitar, which is fine. Like I don't mind a song, but I think I would have liked maybe him to explain just one or two sentences of like I had this video go viral of me playing the guitar in space. I think that would have... Almost what I said about this, he was known for playing guitar in space. If he said yeah. that, is the audience members like you, the context around what's about to happen with this guitar that he's just begun to strum. Yeah, because to me now he's just an astronaut playing a guitar. This is Major Tom to ground control. I've left forevermore. And I'm floating in a most peculiar way And the stars look very different today For here am I floating in the tin can A last glimpse of the world Planet Earth is and there's so much left to do Fear not. Thank you very much. Thank you. So right at the end there, he gets a standing ovation and he quite graciously stands on the TED circle and just sort of takes it and you hear him thank the audience, which I think is just quite nice that he appreciates the appreciation of the audience. Yeah. All right, so a couple of things that I want to talk about now that we've completed watching that. Um, obviously, it is a TED Talk, so it is filmed and it is a bit more visual. So I want to have a quick chat about two things. First is how he did in terms of gestures. And then the second is the question that we always ask ourselves at the end of a presentation, which is what was the message? What was the one takeaway from that talk? Let's start with the visuals. Yeah. So what did you see there? I thought he had quite simple gestures. He's not a hugely energetic presenter, but it works. He's quite conservative with how he moves. He had a lot of simple gestures. But certainly his voice, as you would have heard, and his storytelling does carry that presentation so well. And I wouldn't say that it needs a lot of energy and gestures and movement on stage. For sure. And that's one of the reasons why we picked this to do on a podcast is because so much of what he does is with his voice. It's so effective. So we always ask ourselves the question, what was the message? What was the one takeaway from this presentation? So what do you think? Well, what was the message you got out of that, Kate? For me, I think it's about numbing yourself to fear. If you numb yourself to fear, you'll be able to achieve more. 
I think he did actually say it in there. Right now, I don't think I can explain that sticky note. Yeah, so I think if I was to guess what is was on his post-it note, it was, if you are scared of something, but you try it over and over and over again and practice a lot, you'll conquer that fear and that will enable you to do great, impossible things. I don't think it was the clearest message, but certainly what I take away from that is try something a bunch of times and it will become comfortable. Yeah. And I think like he does does he necessarily need a hugely strong message. I think he's just a really interesting guy with a really cool story and he's kind of bolting a message onto that a little bit. But it's just a really great story and I loved listening to it. So I really love that TED Talk. I've watched a number of times. That's one of the reasons we chose because I just enjoy it. First time I've seen it. Excellent. So that was Chris Hadfield in 2014 with What I Learned from Going Blind in Space. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you'd like to know more, check out presentationboss.com.au slash podcast. And we'd love for you to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts from. At our website, you'll also find plenty of free resources and the show notes for today with links to anything we've discussed. Listener.